first achieves the rare one-two punches of being short and thorough, national and international, fact-based and personable. Every morning, we take the three biggest stories of the day and explain why they matter. And we do it all in less than 15 minutes. So you can start your day a little more in the know than when you went to sleep. Listen now to the Up First podcast from NPR. My name is Sigrid Nunez, and the title of my book is The Vulnerables. The newest novel from National Book Award winner Sigrid Nunez is titled The Vulnerables. It's a look at life during the pandemic lockdown, but you won't find descriptions of illness or death anywhere in the novel. Instead, it focuses on isolation and loneliness through the lens of an unnamed narrator who finds herself house-setting a macaw parrot along with an unexpected undergrad student. The two are forced to coexist and eventually develop a fondness for each other during this trying time. From KMEW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Sigrid Nunez. The Vulnerables has been described as deceptively simple. Can you give our listeners a description of the book? Well, I'm not sure... I wouldn't describe it as as deceptively simple because I'm really not sure what that means, except perhaps what it means is that there's something deeper to it than might first appear because the story is fairly simple. This is a novel that begins in spring 2020 uh, with the pandemic lockdown. You know, it begins with the narrator who is a writer and a creative writing teacher and who is around 70 and who is alone and, you know, is considered to belong to that group known as the vulnerables because of her age, which would make her more vulnerable to infection from COVID. Uh, But very soon she's asked to do a favor for a friend of a friend, which is to go to an apartment nearby in Manhattan. They both live in Manhattan where a parrot A mini macaw named Eureka has been abandoned because the owners have gotten stuck because of lockdown in California, where they'd gone to visit some relatives. And they had a young man, a college undergrad, who had been taking care of the bird, but then his school closes down and he doesn't want to be in, in, um, you know, in the center of, of infection here in New York City. So he takes off. So the narrator agrees to go and feed the bird. And then she loses her own apartment because she gives it to a uh, a doctor who's come from the West Coast to help out as a volunteer doctor in a hospital here in New York, which is overloaded with COVID cases. And so uh, the narrator moves into that other apartment with the bird. And then the young man, the college student, has a falling out with his parents in Vermont where he has gone and so unexpectedly shows up. It's a large apartment, uh, but they are strangers to each other. And the narrator is at first quite put out that she's now stuck with this roommate. And there's Eureka. So you have this odd little group that has been thrown together, this trio, Uh, because of these wholly unusual circumstances, as happened to many people in the world when uh, lockdown struck. Basically, you know, then they have to somehow find a way to get along. And the story goes on. 
So before I talk about this trio of characters in the novel, I want to address the, you know, the fiction versus nonfiction question of the work. There's a line in the book that reads, personal memoirs are hard to sell, and that includes writer's memoirs. And this line captured my attention because I also read in a recent interview with NPR that most of your books are hybrid works that mix fiction with autobiography. So The Vulnerables is billed as a novel. Is it autobiography wearing a thin disguise of fiction or fiction in the guise of autobiography? It's neither. Well, you know, what I meant by hybrid, which was that in all of my books, you know, there is a fictional story, there are fictional characters. But like most writers, I do include some autobiographical elements in my work. And for example, in this case, there is a narrator that I'm strongly identified with. She's um, she's my gender. She's my age. She is a writer and a writing teacher. What I would call the autobiographical elements in The Vulnerables That would be when, you know, there's a story, you're reading about what's happening to these characters, and there are these places where the narrator, who is a first-person narrator, she stops telling the story, and then she makes observations about things, about what's happening, about what's happening with the pandemic, what's happening in the apartment with the young man, whatever. And when she is having these moments where she's reflecting about various things, those, you know, there there really isn't a great deal of distance between her thoughts and my thoughts. But it's not an autobiographical novel by any stretch. So let's talk about these characters then, because the narrator, she's fairly solitary. She lives alone and does not have a partner, but she does have a group of friends with whom she communicates, you know, with somewhat regularity. And at first, her isolation is increased by the COVID pandemic. But then, as you mentioned, she finds herself in this triangle of a parrot named Eureka and a young man named Vetch. So talk to me about this triangle of characters and how they each were able to help one another. Well, it begins when the narrator is alone with Vetch, even before she moves into the apartment. You know, there's a line in the book if you're feeling melancholy or anxious, find somebody who needs your help. That that is a, a good thing because it will help you, which I think people understand very well. And so she has this simple thing that she has to do, take care of this bird. It's easy to do. She enjoys it. The bird needs to be played with because macaws are very intelligent. They need the stimulation. You can't just throw the food at them and walk out. You have to spend time with them. So he's making her feel less lonely. She's an animal lover. He's a he's a beautiful bird. Um, so, you know, so she's, she's bonding with him. And then Vetch arrives and Eureka and Vetch already knew each other, and it's very clear that uh, that Eureka prefers Vetch, and Vetch is more aggressive about his time with the birds. So she she loses that 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 you know that that thing that she had just her and the bird. To begin with, she's so um, she's so hostile to him. He's broken into her space, even though it's not her space, uh, her temporary space. And, you know, they're polar opposites. I mean, you know, he's an undergrad. She's around 70. Um, they have nothing in common, and she's resentful. He is much more accommodating. He is, as as one of her friends says, 
he's so nice to you. Why can't you just be nice back? Because he is. And then, and then something happens to her when she's out in the street, a kind of assault by a crazy person. And that really casts her down. You know, she starts suffering from vertigo. She gets very depressed. She, she's having trouble eating. And he notices all this. And, you know, and one day says, you've been crying. She won't even answer him. And eventually he, he leaves her an edible with a little note saying, good for depression and stimulating appetite. And she takes it. And, um, you know, eventually they, this is something they end up doing, getting high together and hanging out and, and talking. And, you know, they end up, they end up having a bond. One aspect I loved about this work was all of the references to other authors and their works. And, and there are mentions of Dickens and Didion and Wolfe and Plath. And the narrator is influenced by each of these writers in their own way. Are these authors also influential in your own writing? They are. And this is what I meant before about the hybrid, you know, fiction, nonfiction. When my narrator starts remembering things that she's read in Virginia Woolf, as I say, there's no distance between the narrator and me at that point. You know, people have asked me about this because this is true for this book, but also for other books I've written, these literary references. And really, they're, they're there for, for more than one reason. But one reason that people seem to forget is that she has a career. She has a profession. She teaches writing and literature, and she is a writer. Now, if I was writing about a doctor and trying to make a realistic novel about a, a doctor, I couldn't just write about him and his marriage, let's say, or his relationship with his children or some other issue without ever showing him in a hospital <laughs> or taking care of patients or talking to the reader about thinking or whatever about, about medicine. So it's the same thing. I mean, those references are there because those are the things that would be on her mind. Uh, if she's a writer and a teacher of literature, she's obviously a big reader and she doesn't have a family and she doesn't have another career. So this would be something that would be a part of her, you know, every living hour thinking about things that she had read. Yeah. You say she's a, you know, an author and a teacher, but she was not able to concentrate enough to write or read at this time because this is a pandemic novel. And I was struck by what the narrator would see on her daily walks through the empty city. And that while, you know, once the pandemic began and many fled the city, she reversed like her frequent wish of wanting to be elsewhere, like beyond New York. And, you know, at this point, though, she had no wish to leave. And yes, although this was a pandemic novel, it wasn't so focused on, you know, death and despair of the pandemic necessarily, but rather the epidemic of loneliness, wasn't it? Well, I don't really think of it as a pandemic novel. I think of it more as a lockdown novel. I wrote about a pandemic in a book that was published in 2010 called Salvation City, where I did try to imagine what it would be like if there was a, a huge global flu pandemic like the Great Flu of 1918. But here, what happened was I was writing about now. I wanted to write about characters set in the present situation. And I didn't see any way I could do that without referring to what we all knew, which was that we were in lockdown. 
Um, so it's true. I I didn't. I certainly didn't want to tell anybody anything they already knew. My readers do not need me to tell them what was going on with the pandemic. We 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 we, we all knew. We were all watching the news. <laughs> we all we, we all knew. We we knew everything. We knew way more than we wanted to know. So I just wanted to take one person's uh, situation without going into the, the 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 medical details or the you know I mean people knew that New York was a, a you know an, an epicenter, but we who were stuck in our, our our little spaces who were not essential workers or healthcare workers, we just saw what everyone else in the world saw through the news, what was happening. And that was not something that I thought was, you know, my subject to write about. Um, but what, but the, the, the thing about not wanting to leave the city, uh, you know, that, that was something that I did myself feel that, uh, the city was so wounded, you know, and that's when, that's when you don't abandon someone, something, you know, when they're in serious trouble, I, I, I would have felt, I would have felt, um, I don't know, like I was betraying my, I, this is my hometown, I should say, also this, I was, you know, I was born and raised here. So no, I didn't want to leave it when it was at its, you know, crisis point. Not that I blamed anyone who did, but also I have to say, it was a remarkable experience to be in this city when it was empty. A thing that you could you, certainly never happened, but certainly as you would never imagine. I mean, that you could go out and walk and walk and walk and there were no cars. And it was a beautiful, beautiful spring. And the air was clearer and it was quieter and you could hear the birds and there was great beauty in that. So it was a strange mix, you know, it was, it was, it was tragedy all around, but there was also this sense of peace uh, that was, you know, that was, that was, that was quite consoling when you went out. So the narrator is unnamed. And although the internet suggests sugared nouns as a replacement during a search, if <laughs> I remember correctly, and Vetch, which isn't his real sweet name, you know, in the beginning, he had to ask the narrator her name several times before we assume he was able to commit it to memory. Talk to me about names, names that remain hidden, names that replace real names, and all of the flower names. I'll start with the flower names. The The thing is that the, you know, the book, the, the book be begins uh, meditatively to some extent, because it, it, be, it begins with her remembering that Virginia Woolf's first sentence of her novel, The Years, was it was an uncertain spring. Well, why would that come to mind? Well, the reason is obvious. And then she's talking about, and then it occurs to the narrator to think, you know, why are we always told never start a novel with the weather? And then um, she starts, she talks about being out there with the spring and all those wonderful flowers. And then it occurs to her that she cannot think of a single flower name that isn't also a beautiful word. Remember, she's a writer. She would think such a thing. And then, um, you know, she, she thinks lily, ro uh, rose, violet, camellia, jasmine. She goes on and on. Then a little bit later in the book, when she wants to tell a story about some friends of hers, and she's, you know, saying, oh, well, 
in her mind, you can see her thinking, well, I can't use their real names because this is, you know, I'm fictionalizing this. Anyway, so she says, oh, I could, I could call uh, this one particular character, I could call her Lily or Rose or Violet. And then as she continues, she names the one character Lily. And then as she continues with each woman who enters the story, she gives her the name of a flower. And earlier she had mentioned that that on the other hand, a lot of herbs and weeds have dreadful names like vetch, <laughs> mugwort, <laughs> wormwood, bugbane, all that, you know, and it's just interesting. So in her irritation with this 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 young man who's suddenly appeared, I mean, he just suddenly appears in the apartment. He has kept a key. So she 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 wakes up to find him in the kitchen. Um and um she says he had an unusual name that began with a V, and she doesn't give the name. And she says, I'm going to call him Vetch. And so then that, that name sticks. And as for the unnamed narrator, I'm asked about that a lot. There's really not there's really not a reason for it. I don't, I don't, you know, when I when I don't name characters, whether it's it's the narrator or somebody else, uh, you know, it's not because I think that that you know that that's what should happen what happens is that i start writing and there seems in some cases never to come an appropriate time to 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 drop the narrator's name other times i have given my characters names and then for some reason that has given me a bit of a writer's block i'm trying to write on i'm i'm using the name richard for this character as I did in my last, but it's not working. Then I take the name out and I continue to write without ever actually giving this Richard a name and it works better. So it's really kind of, it's it's mysterious, but I have no rules about it. There was a part in the book where our narrator and Vetch had a conversation about poetry, stories, and novels in order of difficult forms. And I loved the quote, in almost every long book I read, I see a shorter one shirking its job. I can't recall who that quote is attributed to now. But talk to me about this idea. And also, you know, at 242 pages, I would consider The Vulnerables a short book. Did it start much longer? I have to say I was surprised when it was put into galley form because I thought it was shorter. To my sense, even at 242 pages, given how how many words there are per page. Yeah, I would, I call this a short book. Um, I've written one book that was longer, that was 400 and something pages, The Last of Her Kind. But I've also written shorter books than this. I, but my memoir of Susan Sontag is 140 pages, I think. I, I am definitely a person who writes short, short books. Yeah. This is your ninth novel, your, your 10th book. Is there anything that you learned about yourself by writing this novel? And is there a hope that you have that readers will take away from The Vulnerables? Well, I can't think of anything specific that I might have learned about, about myself from writing the novel that would be different from, you know, anything else I've written. And I can't even say for sure, you know, if I think all, of all, all those books that, that I've learned uh, something. I mean, I learned things from reading other people's books. 
Um, and then I put what I've learned into the books that I write. Um, and I, I have to say, I, um, I never think about what I want readers to take from a book because readers, I mean, they're all so different. And I just want them to have the experience they're going to have. Now, I do want them to enjoy the book, obviously. I want them to be entertained by it. I want them to recognize uh, something in it that about our shared humanity. You know, I want them to think of me as like them, if not in every single aspect, but certainly I think of it as a shared experience. And then, um, you know, I, I have answered this question once or twice in an interview that to me, the, the, the best thing that could happen with somebody reading your book would be that it would make them want immediately to read another book, not necessarily one of yours, but they would get so much out of it that they would think, oh, reading is terrific. It really does a lot for me. And it's so easy. It's cheap. It's available. I can go to the library if I don't want to buy books. I mean, you know, and I could have this experience, which was, you know, entertaining. It distracted me. I learned something, whatever. It made me feel less alone. Um, I guess that's one other thing. I have heard from any number of readers that um, they were happy to have read this book and other books of mine because it made them feel like they were not alone. And certainly I don't, I don't plan that or think about that beforehand, but it pleases me enormously to think that. The book is The Vulnerables. Sigrid Nunez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Sigrid Nunez, author of the book, The Vulnerables, which was published by Anchor. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.